Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 108 of the Australian Hiker podcast. In today's episode, we're interviewing Lucy Barnard from Tangles and Tail as she attempts her journey from the southernmost point of South America to the most northern point of Northern America. This is an epic journey, almost solely by foot, and covers a distance of around 30,000 kilometres. While a handful of males have completed this trip, no female has yet to replicate this feat, and should she be successful, Lucy will become the first woman to do so. While I have some lofty goals planned over the coming years, this trip is beyond my imagining and nothing short of awe-inspiring in a day and age where truly adventurous trips are becoming a rarity. In this episode, we find out a bit about Lucy and the tail member of her team, Wombat, the reason behind her trip the logistical issues surrounding such a massive undertaking, and how her journey has gone so far. Today we are catching up with Lucy, who is currently in the small town of Oconia in Peru. Lucy, thank you for taking time to talk with Australian Hiker Podcast. Good morning. It's morning over there. That's right. It's, um, as I'm recording, <laughs> as I'm recording this, I'm getting to about nine o'clock at night. So, uh, and we can hear the roosters in the background. So, if people are wondering what that noise is, this is what we're listening to. Okay. So, why did you decide to do an adventure of this size? Uh, you know, it just really comes down to a, f- a few things. First, I hadn't really had an extended holiday before, so I was looking for. Um, a reason, I guess, to take some time out. Um, and I was reading a book um, about the first man who'd walked the length of the world. And I started looking into the, the details of how that would be possible and other people that had been doing it. And I'd noticed that I hadn't seen any females who had walked the length of the world. Um, and that really got under my skin. And I thought, why not? Why hasn't someone walked the length of the world, or a woman. And so I thought I'd give it a go. Uh, and why this particular trip? When you say the length of the world, why north-south? Why not Why not east-west? Well, um, the South American, Northern American continent is completely connected. So I guess logistically that makes it easier. But also I was fo- I'm following in the footsteps of George Megan, who was the first man. Um, and also a part of me when I was looking at beginning, a crazy part of me thought, well, you know, if I get to Alaska, maybe I'll keep going and, and um, circumnavigate the entire world. But now that I've, I'm well and truly into the trip, I, I think that that's highly <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> yes, at some stage you have to have a, have a bit of a normal life, I suppose. <laughs> Definitely. But also, you know, um, people joke about how I'm walking uphill and as it happens – I am walking against the wind currents, um, and so it, it really does feel like I'm walking uphill often. Um, now, most people will make the assumption that you're a keen hiker before this trip. Was this the case? 
I was a wannabe keen hiker, that's for sure. I mean, I've done quite a few hikes back home in Australia. Um, I grew up bushwalking, which I don't know if you can call bushwalking serious hiking, but um, my dad would take us on weekend trips and we'd go gallivanting through areas uh, whenever we could. So I'd done a fair bit and I'd also tried my hand at row gaining as well. But certainly I hadn't done any through hikes or any of the famous long trails in Australia. So what, what, what was the longest hike you did before this trip that you're doing now? Ten days hike going around a lake. So definitely nothing serious. And probably if I'd done the Lara Pinto or if I'd done the Bibbleman, <laughs> I would not have started. <laughs> Because, you know, I think naivety sometimes is a really good thing. You just have to, once once you're in it, you've just got to tough it out. And certainly when you start an adventure, and I've spoken to a lot of cyclists who have gone through this, the first three months are pretty miserable. You go through mood swings of this is fantastic to what am I doing? Um, And on top of all of that, you have a hunger like you've never known before. 24 hours a day and I've since learned how to how to beat the hunger problem but um I think if I'd done a even just a month-long walk I would have come to realize that perhaps it's not as easy and delightful as I thought it would be (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I think that's the thing I uh my 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 longest trip is certainly nowhere near what you've done through and done but that, that was the Bibbleman and I think for me it was um I suppose I I tended to break it down into into chunks and I just tended not to think about it being such a long distance that's Um, exactly what I do so Let's talk about the planning. So tell us a bit about the planning for this trip. Um, Did you spend long planning or was this something that happened very quickly? No, no. I spent a lot of time planning. Um, So what happened is when I was reading that book, I happened to be on a short trip to Patagonia and I wanted to go hiking and I wanted to just do only that and really get outdoors. And I'm quite into rock climbing, so I wanted to be doing that as well. Um, but then I got a toe infection um, and the flu and I really spent my holiday being miserable and it was quite a disaster. So when I got back to work, I can I just tested the idea on a friend of mine and I said to her, you know, I'm thinking that in two years I can save enough money to then walk, make an attempt to be the first woman to walk the length of the world. And she just looked at me and said, that would be amazing. And that was it. You know, that was all I needed to launch myself into planning. And so, of course, financially, it, it takes a lot of savviness to be able to do what I'm doing and I have to be really frugal all the time. So I spent two years not spending anything, making food where I could, trading food where I could. I didn't go on any holidays. I just really pinched at every penny and I gave myself a $2 budget a week for treats at work. So I really, (laughs) yeah, I really tightened the reins on everything and that prepared me for here so that I didn't just start spending money left, right and centre as well. Um, And once I was getting confident that I'd be able to save enough money, I started looking at the the route and poring over maps and trying to decide the trail that I would walk. And fairly quickly I became to realise that there were options and that a lot of these 
um, regions that I want to pass through would come down to the time, the political climate, um, the environment, the weather. And so I didn't get too finicky about the route. Um, I just got a bit more realistic and started focusing on the first hurdle. Um, and right down at the bottom of South America, there is a uh, water crossing. It's called the Strait of Magellan. Uh, and where I wanted to walk to, I would have to cross 250 kilometres over ocean water. And so um, my the ver- very first thing that I focused in on was how I was going to do that, where I was going to find a kayak from um, and have a plan to get me to the first city so that if I wanted to bail out, I could. What were the main challenges prior to starting the trip? I mean, you know, you, you talked about giving yourself $2 a day for treats. I think that, that would automatically rule me out. <laughs> um, I, I think $2 goes nowhere when you when you work in environments that have all these chocolate boxes in them all the time. Well, I tell you what, at my work, you could buy a dollar Freddo, fundraising Freddo. Yep, they're the, they're the you ones. you could also buy a can of soft drink for a dollar. So I usually had to wait till about Wednesday. That was usually the day I needed a little something extra and maybe Friday. And then I'd choose at the time if I wanted soft drink or if I wanted the chocolate. Yeah, no, I uh, I think for me, food, my my wife often accuses me of being of of her being my third favorite thing in life, and uh, food is definitely one of the things that she she insists that's ahead of her. So, uh, oh, I, yeah. uh, I there's no way I, no way knowing I could I could survive on that. Yeah, no, well, no one comes between me and food, but I um, was able to. I bought all of my lunch to work, and I could bring nice things from home. Logistically, how long will this trip take you? What's what's the plan? Well, the plan was three years, um, but I'm starting my third year now and I'm only just up to where I thought I'd be by the end of the first year. So um, something I've come to learn is that plans do not work over here at all. You have to be really flexible um, and resilient. So now I think that I can get it done within five years, six years maybe, um, and largely because I had a lot of problems in the beginning with my equipment breaking and being sick and having to wait for new equipment to arrive, which can take months. Uh, and now I'm just toughing, toughing it out. I'm more resilient. If there's a problem, I just find an onshore um, solution to it. Um, and so I, I really am quite hopeful that I'll be done within the five or six-year time period. So why why do you think it is that um, you know you you're saying you started off thinking it was going to take you three now potentially you sort of five to six what was the what were the real issues that sort of slowed you down or 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 changed what you thought you were you were going to be able to do from the start I think um, the the biggest thing was that I'd really glorified um, how easy it would be. Uh, in that I'd done the math and I thought it was quite reasonable to do 30 kilometres per day, five days a week, and take two days off a week. And I didn't factor in rest periods, sickness, or enjoyment and taking it, you know, stepping out and doing side work because I really thought that it would just be the whole thing would be really beautiful. I didn't expect to be following roads as much as I'm doing. Um and now, I mean, I have been in the mountains a fair bit, but now I'm following main roads to get me through the desert. And to be able to cover the distance that you need to cover and not take breaks is just not possible, or not for me anyway. So I think 
my expectations were just really not so realistic. Um, so listen now, listening to some of your pre- previous media interviews and and following you mm. online on your uh, your online map, you seem to be mm. averaging around about twenty five kilometers a day. Um, I don't know if that's that's the case, but that's what it looks like. How's that working for you? Well, twenty so twenty five kilometers is my favorite distance because um, when it's not summer and you're in the desert, when you're anywhere else. You can sleep till the sun rises. You can get up. You can walk a couple of hours, have a rest, and have a just a really nice, gentle, enjoyable time. But um, when you're not, I guess for for now, I'm walking 30 kilometers a day because I need to get through to the next town without having to carry, for example, three liters of water per day for me and for the dog that's with me, um, and. And in the depths of the Atacama Desert on the Chilean side of the border, the distance between towns could be anywhere up to 200 kilometres. And so you can imagine carrying 40 kilos of water um, and doing 25-kilometre days, something you've got, you've got to decide if you're going to try and push further and save on weight, which is what I elected to do. Um, and that worked out for me um i ended up doing about 40 or 45 kilometers a day but then when the, when i got inland it became way too hot to do that and dangerous um to be walking in the day so i started walking in the night and then finding shelter at night time to rest and sleep through the day so are you going to be walking the whole way or will there be some forms of alternate travel at some stage the goal is to completely walk to walk where I'm able to um, and then if there's a water crossing I can use a kayak or some sort of a self-motorized um, option um, and of course there is one area that I may not be able to walk through it's called the Darien Gap it's in Panama it's a very dangerous area um, and some people I know who've just tried to walk through there they're two women um, and the reason they weren't allowed through was because they didn't have a man to um take responsibility for their emotional well-being <laughs> which you know back home it's kind of that seems kind of crazy but that's just how the culture is and so um when I reach that area I'm going to need to find a companion who can walk with me and speak on my behalf and vouch for me but then we're also going to need to be able to get permission and there are some serious risks involved in passing through such a notorious area so I need to find someone that can speak Spanish fluently and potentially have some significant military or um, protection experience because things can get really serious in that area. So you're you're not a Spanish speaker? I'm trying. I'm (laughs) trying really hard. And, you know, I really thought I'd be fluent in Spanish by now. It's been two years. Um, And I think it's incredible that I haven't been able to pick it up but then when I look at it and the time that I spend in town versus the time that I'm completely alone it makes sense that I'm still learning because I can't practice um but I have um audio lessons that I listen to every day and I am just this week actually finding that I'm having proper conversations with people um and that is really refreshing because I I'm really love hearing about the stories and the lives of the people that I meet. I love 
working out what makes people tick and putting my my um, feet in their shoes per se um, and getting an essence of their lifestyle. We uh, we did South America, as I said, in 2006, and we did Spanish lessons beforehand, and it was probably a bit mm-hmm. easier having two of us. And we found that in Peru, we didn't seem to have too much of a problem. We could make ourselves understood and, and, and mm. we could sort of understand what people were saying. But we got over the border to Bolivia and it was like it was a totally different language. Um, it was yes. just, you know, it was Spanish, but it was, you know, we, we just gave up. It was sort of like, uh, this, this is, this is <laughs> oh, not, no. this is not what we were speaking in Peru. But, and your ear really has to get into the nuances. I mean, Chileans speak so quickly with so much slang. And then I crossed the border and people looked at me like, what are you What are you saying? So I had to, again, I had to slow down and really make sure that the, the letters that I was pronouncing were pronounced correctly and that I wasn't adding on Chilean nuances. Yeah. And so... I, I imagine that I'll experience something very similar once I get to Colombia. Okay, so what uh, what's your resupply um, strategy? Are you are you just buying as you go and you pick up things that you find, or uh, are you sending stuff ahead to yourself? How's that working? Um, it works mostly off magic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking. Um, so. I had a lot of weight issues in my in my pack and in the cart that I have and wanted to really downscale what I'm carrying. So I don't have very many things in the way of backup. Um, and now I'm carrying a stove, for example, that's run by gas cylinders. And I know I can get them here, um, but not in the small town. So I really depend on either stocking up and maybe having two canisters instead of one and then accepting that, when I run out of gas, then I have to go to pre um, food that's pre-prepared. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then when it comes to clothing f- that protects me against the wind and the cold, I really depend on kindness of people back home letting me know that they have a friend or that they're coming over to wherever I am and can they bring me something and these people are amazing because when they do that I'm like yes how much can you bring and often they're happy to bring a whole contain like a whole a whole bag for me and then I can completely change um all of my clothes out that are usually full of holes and worn right down they'll bring me Anzac biscuits which I'm really obsessed with um (laughs) and anything else that they think might be a comfort yeah, I think I think that's the thing. It's it's bad enough in Australia when you go through little towns. I I'm I'm pretty picky on my food, uh, and I you know mm. I, I'm not gonna I'm, I I refuse to survive on two minute noodles unless there's absolutely no choice. But um. <laughs> let me tell you, I started by eat, living on polenta and deb potato, and I will never ever eat either of those things again <laughs> in my life. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, I, I went through that stage with jerky. I, 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 I for years oh, I ate jerky, and, and now I've just gone no. off it. So. Yeah, um, I understand that. Although recently, um, a man sent me over some um, pod food to try, which are it's essentially jerky. But what he does is he makes these meals that are full meals, like Thai curries and roasts and all sorts, and you know. 
when it comes to the dried meat, I just can't get my head around it. It's really hard for me to chew and it takes all the saliva out of my mouth. But the vegetables were so good. So I can see why you liked it, but also at the same time, that's just not something I could live off forever. I must admit, I've I've I use the pod meals as well, and I, I and one of my favourite things out of that is the um is is the vegetables, uh, and yeah, there's one, they're so good. There's one of the one of the meals that's got dried pineapple, in it and it's just really nice pineapple. Um, oh, you know, I think I had that. It what that was really surprising, um, and I wish I wish I could try all of them, um, but that's a logistics thing, you know. You just can't. I can't get them here, so I have to do with what I have brings us on to the topic is so you're talking about um uh, uh friends or people that you know bringing you bringing your things over and, and and helping you sort of swap clothing out um how are you going with sponsorship on this trip have you got uh, any of the companies sponsoring you at all yeah look i'm really trying now to get some financial support and get some companies on board you know i was harassing telstra for a while because i thought if i could get a sim card i wouldn't have so much trouble with being connected um even just for my security but i'm still pestering them (laughs) um but the people like when I first started, and this made a really big difference for me, you know, when you have a company who believes in what you're doing and that you can achieve it. So the first company that um, got behind me was a grant that I applied through through the North Face. Yep. They have this adventure grant that they offer every year. It can go to anybody, male or female. You just have to pitch to them your idea, and then they'll give you $8,000 in cash and $2,000 worth of equipment. And so I won that and then since then they've been really supportive and continued to send me clothing when I need it if I can find someone to bring it over. (laughs) Um, And then later I um, received the Nancy Bird grant, which is through Australian Geographic, and that really helped top me up. I'm not spending a lot of money over here, especially now that I'm in Peru, Um, but being able to stay in accommodation when, you know, you're not well or you just need to wash everything is something that I really, really appreciate. Um, yeah, and then other people have gotten on board while I've been walking. So Cedar Summit helped me out with all of my equipment too. And so just with that alone, um, my expenses have dropped considerably and I may just be able to limp over the line at the other end. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Skinny, I- but finished <laughs> I, I must admit we uh, we found that as well we we didn't spend a lot of time in chile but we we realized how expensive chile is and oh, then and then, and then you me. and then you get into peru and the price as you say the prices just plummet it's uh it's it's uh, it's funny i know it's a different country but they you would think they would be very similar but they're they're very you different would. especially i mean it's just a line an imaginary line that divides the country and to be able to be on the other side and suddenly buy food i mean my week's food now is about a fifth of what it was in chile to give you an idea so i must admit though having said that there are some very good indian restaurants in chile um there are yeah all right so that brings us up that brings us on to equipment now i suppose one of the first questions i'll first ask you is you're carrying a trailer is that a mono walker that you're using or is that some other sort of uh, device no it's a mono walker that was um given to me by kai who's the man that is behind the system um and that again 
happened through nothing more than magic <laughs> in the sense that there were these two French guys over here in um, the Atacama Desert doing um, a research project where they put themselves through extreme duress and record um, – they use a portable EEG to record their brain function while they're doing that to see what, how the brain copes in these situations. Um, and they were just coming into Santiago when I was approaching Santiago. And Kai said, you know, they're going to have to lug this back. It was, I gave it to them to help them out. You may as well keep one of them. If you like, I'll tell them to leave the newer one behind so that that can get you through the Atacama desert. And then if you like it, you can keep using it. Um, and so I said, yes, please, <laughs> and collected the cart. Um, and that and that alone is the reason that I was able to get through the Atacama Desert because, as I was saying before, the towns are so far apart. It's scorching hot. There's just zero water. When there is water in the small oasis that you pass through, it's all contaminated, so you can't just go ahead and, and drink it. So I was filling up water bags. You know, I have four 10-litre water bags that I can fill and would then load that into the back of the cart and the way that the cart's designed it takes a lot of the weight onto the wheel and off your body until you go uphill (laughs) then you're you're dragging this thing up the hill Uh, and then it's miserable and you've got a dog with you who doesn't want to walk anymore and at that stage Wombat was about three months old and he he would just sleep in the back Well, I suppose it, I suppose it's it's probably a better option than and as you say, carrying forty kilos of water. But uh, it's better dragging. Not possible. Than, than, no. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so so you so overall, you're finding it to be quite a good uh, good device. Really, really good. Yeah, actually, I mean, I was talking to Kai about this the other day. The only problem, I mean, if you want to do, if if I think. When I get back to Australia and I want to go hiking with my sister's children, I would take the monowalker because you can load it up and the kids can walk without having to carry too much. Um, the only problem that I have with it over here is that for my personal security, I'm a bit of a sitting duck in that I can't just get out of it quickly and um, measure self-defence techniques um, and I can't get off the road suddenly if I need to or um, – you know, like there's just a you can't scramble and pull yourself rock climb out of uh, out of the, the situation, way. which is and I've had to do that before. You know, where I've chosen to walk along the beach and then suddenly the waters come up and I've had to climb my way out. Um, and I, I and the difference here is that then I now I don't choose to see if I can get myself along the ocean side along cliffs um, because I know that. If I need to get out quickly, I can't do that with the mono walker. Um, but if you're following a trail, it's magical. And I know there's a lot of people that use them on the Santiago Trail, for example, over in Spain. Um, and I can see why they do that because they want to go walking with their kids and they can't with them on their own yeah. without a llama. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another option, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, no, it'd been interesting. I, I must admit, I um, I've been looking at the Mono Walker for a while and thinking that'd be something worth trying. And then I thought, oh, that looks mm. like what you're carrying. So I thought, I thought yeah. it probably was. Yeah, it's spot on. Uh, um, so you, so 
Actually, I'll I'll go off gear just for a moment. You did mention security, and um, so have you had much much of a problem with security issues on the trip so far? Not really. I mean, I'm always on a high alert um, in that I know that I just scream foreigner, um, and now that my hair's been turned red by the sun, even more so. I'm like a, a flaming beacon. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I have had two occasions where I've been really harassed by some guys who've tried to – this is when I was had my backpack and they've tried to get me to get into the car with them. And, of course, no, I can't, I can't hitchhike. I have to walk. Um, but, but in those situations, all I've had to do is step out onto the road when traffic's been coming and stop traffic and then just um, hold – hold everyone up until they continue on and leave me alone um but otherwise chile is quite set like so long as you're not going into areas where you shouldn't and you are careful about what time you're out and about and take the appropriate measures chile has been quite safe and now i'm in peru and i've been here i think for about 20 days now um the people here are so kind they love feeding me like i just Someone on Instagram described me as a street girl. (laughs) I think it's kind of like that. People keep bringing me these big containers of lunch because they think that I'm probably starving. (laughs) Um, And I'm just getting more comfortable in this country the longer that I'm here, but, of course, maintain my resilience. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we'll go back to to gear again. So apart from the the mono walker, how and, and you were saying that your gear is wearing out, which is which is understandable. Um, mm. Have you changed your gear much since the start of the trip? Not really. I mean, when I started, I started with a tent that only has a single vestibule entry, um, and that for me just doesn't work. Like I because you have to position it in a way that you can sleep. Um, and that's very frustrating and also it um, wasn't very good for condensation, which drives me nuts. Um, so I ended up changing that tent out when I got the first opportunity to. Um, and my first backpack broke because I had been carrying too much weight in it, so the yep. spine snapped. Um, but they were really helpful with that. Uh, and then I've had a few little things like I was carrying a solar panel um, and the it, it malfunctioned. I don't even know how because they're meant to be malfunction-proof. But one thing I'm really good at is um, if there is a device that I can purchase, um, the chances are of it being a faulty one are <laughs> 90% for me. I mean, somebody sent me over a drone to get better photos with, and that was really exciting. Um, and it's a DJI DJI drone it's a really it's meant to it's got a good reputation yep and it never flew it never flew once it's just the compass is broken and now i have to fight with them to get a new one and then another friend sent me one uh and now the chip processing chips overheated and it won't fly so it's just like i'm carrying this dead weight because the technology keeps failing and it's not necessarily the company i just feel like i'm cursed when it comes to cool stuff 
my my wife's a bit like that. She 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 murders technology, and it's a lot of like, what what are you doing to this? I I'll ah. use this thing for weeks on end, and you know, give it you know her her Fitbit. She she manages to flatten the battery on it, you know, almost in about two or three times as fast as I do. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? <laughs> That's incredible. But for me, you know, it's no, it's always dead on arrival. Like I mean, I bought, for example, a thermos for my birthday because I thought. This is something that I've really, really been missing out on. This is through winter. Yeah. And I bought a really well-known product. And the first one that I bought, the vacuum was broken. I mean, that doesn't happen ever, but that's what happened. And it made for a great hot water bottle, but a useless thermos. And then the next one that they replaced, um, the seal was broken. And so, again – the the what would happen is the lid would unwind and pop off the bottle and so again I can't use it because then I'm just going to have water all through my backpack (laughs) and finally I got one that worked and it's wonderful but now it's summer and I don't carry it (laughs) yeah yeah um, all right, so on to the, the mental and physical aspects of the trip. So for most uh, most through hikers or people doing the sort of distances you're doing, there tends yep. to be physical issues such as uh, uh, injuries or excessive weight loss, uh, blisters. Yep. What physical mm-hmm. issues have you had and, and how have you coped? Oh, they've kind of – they've really changed. I mean, when I first started, I had real blister problems and I sort of worked that out um, and then I'd get – really bad cramps or shin splints which I've never had before and I was then introduced to somebody who's a um, a physio so she lets me write to her and ask her questions and then she'll and I'll draw all over my body with a nico pen and I'll put an x where the pain is and then a dash where the end of the pain is to give her an idea <laughs> and we'll have this like online consultation <laughs> um and I mean I I find with the weight loss that your body just finds um, its comfort level. So you kind of you lose weight and then your body just rests where it likes to be and it and it, it stabilizes. Um, and I find it really interesting because actually now when I'm walking to save weight, I don't um, I don't eat much and that's because I just don't get hungry anymore because I've stopped eating sugar while I'm out on the trail. Yeah. Um, and I find that if I eat chocolate or anything with added sugar, I'm still eating fruit um, and honey, for example, but anything else just makes me want to eat more. And so when I cut that out, I don't get hungry at all and have to make sure that I'm eating something. And so I can get away with eating um, oats for breakfast. Later I'll have an apple um, and then I'll eat some nuts and maybe dinner. So I'm really not eating much at all. Um, and when I get to town, I just really, really take advantage. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I, and I must admit, I think I think you're game-eating chocolate in South America. I think I tried it a couple <laughs> of times and thought, nah, it just doesn't taste very good. It, it tastes sta- no. doesn't taste stale. <laughs> Yeah, and also, I mean, in Peru, for example, and in Ecuador, you can buy a cacao really cheaply and yeah. you can just make the hot chocolates the way that you want and that I'm pretty happy about. Um, but, again, I only do that when I'm really miserable to give myself a bit of a sugar high and get through the tough times um, because the 
the penance of eating sugar and then being starving is just it's just not worth it i i must admit i um i i find that doing physical exercise actually kills my hunger off uh, so mm. i've i've really got to force myself to eat it's sort of uh, um yeah you know, i i i uh, did a a three day fairly intense hike just recently, and um, my Fitbit was telling me I burnt twenty one and a half thousand calories, um, and yep. and that's probably you know, for three days. That's probably pretty normal for me, but it's like I cannot eat that much food. It's just physically impossible. No, yeah, um, you re- you really can't. And I mean, there this is one of the interesting gender differences as well with um, maintaining fat and your body coping with endurances endurance sports women tend to hold on to fat a lot more than men do and so for us it it's we tend to to cope better with endurance activities than men do yeah i've seen it'd be interesting to see how you go once you hit the usa i um you see the photos of people who do the pacific crest trail and the long trails there and uh, you know the women are are pretty stripped stripped back but the men look like scarecrows Um, yeah they really and it's just a um um, biological thing, you know, like that's the the way the metabolism works. Well, what about um, what about the mental aspects? Um, how do you find? You you said you've had some company from time to time, but how do you cope uh, with uh, not having a constant human company, or or is the towns the town stops enough for you? Uh, you know, I didn't really notice how much I missed having company until a really good friend of mine came and walked with me through the Atacama Desert. Um, and I missed her so much that when she when she left, it was just heartbreaking, you know, because I, I realised what I was missing. Um, and now I'm walking again. I'm, I'm used to being alone. But certainly the lone, loneliness is a real problem for me because I'm such an extrovert and yeah, I do. I get into town and I really clutch on to people and try and talk to them as much as I can. Um, but also now um, that I have a spare battery, I can recharge my phone, which means that um, I'll start the day without anything. And then halfway through the day, I'll put on a book or I'll listen to a podcast Um to get me through the distance that I need to get through. Right now I'm walking 30 kilometres a day and the first 15Ks are quite easy, but then when when the heat picks up and it's just I'm walking up hills or, or whatever, a bit of a distraction is really helpful um, to take my mind off it. All right. Well, that brings us on to, to Wombat. So your, your, web, your blog and your website name is Tangles and Tail. And I suppose I'll ask you two questions here. What is tangles and what is tail? Yeah, I just, I really just wanted to have a blog that gave you an, a visual impression of who we are. And so, tangles, my hair is just unruly <laughs> and I've never been able to control it. I don't even, I just don't try. And why I haven't cut it off is because um, when it's short, it's worse. It's just, it's, it's really unsightly. And so, <laughs> I either tie it back and pretend it's not there, plait it, or, I mean, it really doesn't matter what I do because when I get into town, I have to spend about an hour brushing it out. Um, and then tail is not the story tail, but the, the tail of my dog. Why? Uh, where did uh, the name Wombat come from and where did Wombat come from? Oh, 
Well, what I did is I thought I would let the people who've been following the journey be involved because you know a lot of a, a lot of people have been following from day one and even the people who haven't been really um supportive so i made an election using slido which is kind of like a conference question and answer assisted app um so people could either suggest a name or vote on names or both um and the name that was most popular actually it came down to a couple Yuki, Drover, and Wombat. Um, and I couldn't really go with Drover because I didn't want to spend three years explaining to Spanish <laughs> people why my dog had a female name when he was a male. I just knew that was going to cause me endless problems. Um, I, I think but I really liked been, the name. I think you would have been explaining to the Americans what a Drover is as well. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it because I wanted an Australian name, like a really Australian-sounding name. Yep. Um, and... Then it came down to Yuki and Wombat, and Wombat just was out, like, won, won the votes. So that's the name that I gave him. Yep. Um, so And why a blue healer? I mean, you know, is there any particular reason for picking mm. that, that sort of breed? Absolutely, yeah. Look, originally I wanted to get a rescue dog because, I mean, there are so many street dogs, but the, whenever I met these dogs, they had a broken leg or they were just a bit traumatised and not, suitable for dragging across the globe and I thought okay maybe I can rescue an adult who is a specific breed that is suitable and when I did the research and compared all the breeds it just happened that one of the most suitable breeds would be an Australian breed um blue healers and cattle dogs they're really protective yeah um very strong endless energy, really intelligent. And I just thought, you know, this dog's going to be really trainable um, and a, a really a really good companion. I mean, they have a really strong sense of a character and, they, and he does on occasion growl at somebody that he doesn't want me to um, be talking to and I, I take that seriously and I just tell them I'm running late and I keep going. Um, and so I started looking and I put a message out to the community of people that have um, Blue Healers in Chile. There's a the Facebook page, believe it or not. Um, and I couldn't find anyone that had a dog that wanted or, or knew of a problem dog or a dog that just wasn't working out in its home. Um, and in the end, I ended up accepting a puppy because I just thought, well, I either need to get a puppy now and have it trained for when I'm in more risky areas um, or I need to risk not finding a dog at all, um, which I wasn't comfortable doing because – now that I have a dog, I feel a lot more secure. And people really are. They see him and they say lobo, lobo, which means yeah, wolf. Yeah. Um, and I never saw it. I never really thought – I could never really see the dingo in a blue healer because they're just such a normal dog that I've been around my whole life. Um, I think that they're often the ones that – because they're so high energy, they're the ones that end up at the – at the dump or abandoned if they are, you know, at the RSPCA or at the pound. Um, yes, but he, people here either think that he's really scary or very handsome. I, I must admit that they are a fairly unique breed. And I think for a lot mm. of people overseas, I think they, uh, uh, they, they probably would be trying to work out exactly what they are. They don't really tend to look like any other sort of breed of dog. If, you know, for, I think from an Australian perspective, we, we recognize them, but, most foreigners yeah. probably wouldn't be able to tell what they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, th- I mean, it's incredible. Like, I, I walk past anybody and they the first thing they say is, does he bite? 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah, I do. I say that, or I say um, yes when it's necessary. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I even I... think about putting a muzzle on him so that um, when I'm out of town, people see that he has a muzzle because he bites. And then when I'm set up at my in my tent and he doesn't have the muzzle, they need to stay away. Yeah. <laughs> Mind games. So talk us through a, a typical day uh, on, on your trip. What, how, where do you start? How do you, how do you, how do you mm-hmm. handle each day? Um, well, every, uh, now that I'm in a unique situation right now because I am in the desert and Wombat refuses to walk after 10 a.m. because it's too hot. <laughs> um, and it is. It's pretty hot. Like, for me, I don't care. Like I can deal with the heat, but he can't, which is weird because this breed's meant to be able to deal with it. Um, so right now to manage that, originally I just started walking at about um, five in the morning and I would just get to the 10 or push him through to 11 and then break until four o'clock and then walk the last two hours before I had to set up my tent with some daylight. Yep. And the problem with doing that is it's not really enjoyable because I can't set up, relax, cook food when I want, write in my diary. I really just had to sit there and wait out the heat, which was boring um and so then last week what I decided to do is to get up at midnight and walk from 1 a.m through till about 10 a.m and then find a really good spot where we can set up he can die and and have his little heat breakdown (laughs) you know and it's I think it's just he's pulling the wool over my eyes because um if he sees a dog he'll play with it all day and not and suddenly forget (laughs) that it's hot um, but I'm not going to fight with him. So, um, and I, and I want to respect that when he needs a break, he needs a break. So that's been working really well. And I'm going to continue to do that until we're in the mountains. Um, but what I'd really like to do is get up just before sunrise, eat breakfast, um, and, you know, watch the sun come up, not that you can see it on this side come up per se, but then start walking in light and just take our time and meander through the day um, up until it's time to set up. I think that would be nice and having a few hours of sunlight before having to go to bed would be delightful. Speaking of wombat, what's what's the plan when you get get into the uh, United States and you you start going through areas? And I assume there will be areas uh, where you, where you won't be able to take him. Correct. Yeah, actually, I've been looking into that. Um, so, and I don't look into things too seriously because rules change. And also, I always like to think, you know, there's a possibility that I'm going to not not complete the walk. Um, and a part of that is just it's better for compartmentalization of goal setting. Yeah. Um, but in terms of America, so there at the moment I was leaning towards doing the CDT so I could go through Banff. And then I met some cyclists who did the same thing. And they said that um, following that trail was the worst part of their entire journey. And so on that, I probably will do the PCT now instead because yeah. I'm sick of battling when I don't need to. Um, and they have national parks. So what I'll be doing, um, and there are quite a few people who've taken their dogs on the journey with them, and then there are dog kennels that will accept your dog while you complete that leg, and then you've just got to go back, pick your dog up, and get yourself up to the next point. 
Yeah, no, that would be interesting to see. I mean, I know, you know, particularly some of the issues, are, I mean, you know, it's like here in Australia, it's worrying about dogs having a go at the wildlife, but when the wildlife yeah. over there is, is a lot bigger and a lot more aggressive oh, in some man. areas. So. Yeah, and I mean, it's you can train a dog um, perfectly, but you can really never know or predict how they're going to react to any certain situation. And for that reason, he's always on the lead unless I'm really away from roads and know that he's not going to run across the street and be hit by a car, which yeah. I think is highly probable he's just not attuned to dodging vehicles like the street dogs here are um and it's not worth the risk so i think there's that what also worries me is that when you put a dog into a kennel that you're elevating the risk of it catching some sort of a sickness which would really um be frustrating um and of course then to put a dog into a kennel that's got high energy needs and is used to walking long distances every day. I think that would be quite a nightmare for the people that receive him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll just have to see how it goes. But, you know, I have a lot of um, uh, faith in the kindness of strangers and I every time I've faced something like this, there's always been someone who's been able to help me out. So I also hope that I'll be able to find someone who is either – not so, not a kennel per se, but somebody who's willing to run him every day, who happens to be a long distance runner or a farm that doesn't mind having an extra dog um, on their property. Okay, so what's what's been the highlight of the trip so far? Um, well, you know, I really have gone through some magnificent areas and also taken side trips to places like um, San Pedro de Atacama, which is this town in the middle of the desert, which has the most amazing um, scenes to be, you know, you can go 20 kilometres in one direction and see these beautiful reds and amazing rock formations and then you can go a different direction and have these geysers and that, you know, the whole the whole journey has just been full of the most incredible scenes. Um, but I have to say that above all of that, it's just the times when I'm really really happy is when somebody's done something really nice for me, bought me some food or helped me in some way. And I really didn't expect it to be like that. But meeting people, I would say, is the highlight. And probably it's because, you know, when you're walking, 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 you begin to I still I still enjoying the view, but you stop seeing it as much as you do when you first began. Um so I would say the highlight is the people. Uh, what about the what's the what's been the 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 low points of the trip for you? Definitely when I'm sick. Um, I really haven't had a situ- situation that's been a low point that hasn't been based around illness. Um, when I first began, I got to about the thousand kilometer mark. I passed it actually, and then I had water poisoning, and I just. Was so things had broken in my pack was broken and I was just had this moment of what is all this for anyway, and decided to hitch back to the previous town where I'd planned to take a break, um, and when I got there I I was accepted by this lady that I'd been referred to who was just so mothering and she listened 
to all of my woes and how miserable I was. And she just gave me this really irritating, knowing motherly nod that mothers give. <laughs> um, and then I stayed there for about a month and I really had a great time hiking through El Shal 10 and just, you know, being a normal tourist. And then after that month, she waved me off as I continued my journey. <laughs> Uh, so that's a low point. And I mean, the last two days I've had some form of food poisoning and I've had to, um, really battle to get into town in between having emergency toilet breaks, um, and hope that I can find somewhere where I'm a bit invisible. Um, but I mean, I'm just kind of used to having these little hiccups that I, it doesn't affect me as much as it used to. Now I just think it's funny. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think there's probably a, a use-by date on being funny. <laughs> with, with yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> if it's more serious, it's not funny. So um, now you talked about you've, you've, you've got a tent. Are you always staying in a tent or are you sleeping out in the open or using shelters or, uh, or, or lean-tos occasionally? Well, let me tell you, I am the queen of abandoned houses. I can see one and know it's abandoned before I can, you know, from maybe a kilometre away. I can spot those little places and I'm like, yes, and I'm hardly ever wrong. So if I find an abandoned house or a shack or something or, or as you say, a shelter that I can sleep under, you bet I'm going to sleep under that rather than setting up my tent. Um, And... Sometimes I have a bivy, which I um, originally had for the shade to make shade in the middle of the day in the desert. Um, and sometimes I'll use that as well instead of using my tent. Um, but I have to be careful because um, what I didn't expect is that in some coastal regions of the desert, um, there's like fog that builds up in the night and then it settles on your tent. But it's not, it's not like condensation. It's so full of salt that you get like this sticky, uh, like like a thick water, I guess you could describe it, like thick slime that gets onto your tent. Um, And you don't want that getting onto your sleeping bag. So you can't really cowboy camp, as they call it, um, because you'll ruin your equipment. And even my tent, I'm surprised that it's held up to it as well as it has because I'm not able to wash it down at all. Um, But I'm really watchful because I'm, I'm watching out for corrosion of my my pegs and the poles and everything because I just can't see how something can hold up to it um, for a, an extended period of time to the point where I recently met some um, coast guards who maintain the lighthouses along the coastal region and they have to repaint the lighthouses every three months or they just get completely consumed by the salt. Yeah, that's a, that's a bit of a worry, isn't it? You tend not to think about yeah. things like that when you're hiking. So, um, no, it's one of those things that's just popped up that's been a total surprise. Okay, so what are you most looking forward to between now and when you finish the trip? Visitors, <laughs> <laughs> visitors who bring me Anzac biscuits. Ah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, Um, No, I'm also really looking forward to passing through some areas. Um, So, for example, I'm in Peru right now and I have a map of the Incan Trail. And the only reason I'm still on the coast is that I have a limited time on my visa, so I have to get up 
north far enough before I can jump onto that trail because otherwise I might become illegal and I don't want problems at the border, especially with a dog, um, if I overstay my visa. Um, so I'm really looking forward to jumping onto that trail. And then there's a trail in Ecuador called the um, Ecuador Divide Trail, which is just gorgeous. So I'm really looking forward to getting to that. And I believe that there is access to food and water almost every day. So that's going to be great. And um, further north, I haven't really looked too much further because as I say I try not to plan too far ahead it's just too overwhelming but one place that I really have always wanted to go is to Banff I want to check out Banff yeah yeah I must admit I uh, as much as I love the uh, the Australian uh, bush I, I just love some of the scenery in the states it's just amazing so yeah. yeah totally and I think if I do end up jumping onto the PCT I think that's going to be something completely different because there's such a community of hikers there. Everyone's sharing knowledge. I mean, I've just had to learn everything as I go and I can imagine that I'll get up to the PCT when I'm nearly finished and I'll be learning things that I wish I knew three years previously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so how are, how are the expectations meeting the uh, the reality at the moment? You know, is to have you, you mentioned that things have been a bit harder than you thought, but... Uh, yeah, is it is it meeting what you thought it was going to be? No, <laughs> <laughs> I really just thought I'd be in my backpack hiking along every day, big smiles. And I mean, there's a lot of smiles, um, but I didn't think about the foot pain, the muscle pain, the cramps, the cramps when I'm not walking for a couple of days because my body's like, ah, you need to walk. I thought I'd have lots of time. I thought I'd be listening to. Um, all these educational courses and doing online courses as well. I thought I'd come back and my general knowledge would be so much better and I'd be way better at trivia because I'm useless at it. <laughs> um, but uh, that none of that's happened at all. Um, yes, there's been a lot of beauty and I have seen things that I don't think many people have been will ever you know have ever seen and I'm really fortunate for that. Um, but also I guess the biggest thing is that for me this has turned into a job and, you know, to get sponsors you have to do a lot of social media, you have to do a lot of content and to make that work out means that I really I don't rest, that I get into town and I'm scheduling things for Instagram and writing stories and um, trying to do anything to make sure that uh, this trip's viable because if I can't find financial um, assistance at some point that's um, – going to cover my costs then it would be really shit <laughs> to have to bail you know with one or two countries to go because I can't afford to eat through my way through that that city yeah <laughs> or the next yeah. or to the next town yeah well I suppose that's one advantage of that uh, of when, if you do get onto the Pacific Crest Trail is that there seems to be a big culture of, of trail angels trail angels who want to feed you so I'm sure you can make, make yes. well, good use of that. Oh, I have heard about them. And I mean, I have to, uh, I mean, I have to say that I meet these trail angels already because, as I was saying before, people see me and they, they feel inclined to give me food, which is really so lovely, honestly. Like I just i am so humbled by it. Um, but I do know that there's this culture and this festivity along those trails. So I'm, that's something that I'm really looking forward to as well. All right. Now, one final question. As far as the trip 
uh, so far, what one thing would you do differently? <laughs> <laughs> or is that too is that too hard a question? <laughs> oh well, do you know what the sad thing is, and I'm happy. I'm go- I'm doing my best, and I'm going to keep going, and I'm going to see this thing through. I really hope that I get all the way. Um, but if I was to do something differently, had I had I known what I know now before I left, the chances of me starting would be pretty slim. <laughs> so if I was to do something differently, it would probably be not to have done it at all and just to have hot um, cherry picked the best hiking areas in the world and just um, been better at taking holidays. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned from all of this is that Previously, I was overworking, never taking holidays, never traveling because I just didn't have the confidence to do it or know what I was, know where to begin. And now I've come to realize that working as much as I was working is insane. And I, if I hadn't have started what I'm doing, then I would have um, worked my life away and never really taken time out to enjoy the things that um, the world has on offer. I think that's that's something that most long distance hikers tend to discover. It's like why 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 I'm, you wouldn't, as you say, you wouldn't necessarily do this or do this again. But you you mm. discover that what you were doing in your life beforehand wasn't necessarily right either. It's just crazy that we're working five days a week to earn money that we end up spending, and usually the way we spend it forces us to go back to work longer. You know, like I just. I can't really see myself working a five-day week or if I'm working a five-day week, I can't see myself not taking my vacations like I was previously. Yeah, no, it's it's nice to have them built up occasionally, but you do have to take them. Yeah, um, absolutely. Now, I suppose, that, I suppose I'll ask you one last thing is, um, is there anything else you, you'd like to say before we, we, we close out the interview? Not really. I mean, if anyone wants to come and walk with me for a little bit, they're more than welcome to. Or if anybody is traveling over to Peru or Ecuador over the next year, um, send me a message because, you, like, if you've got room in your backpack, it may just or in your in your bags, it, you may be able to help me in quite a profound way. <laughs> Okay, so we've been talking to Lucy Barnard from Tangles and Tail as she attempts her journey from the southernmost point of South America to the most northern point of Alaska. So uh, we will keep on following along uh, as the journey continues uh, and we wish you the best of luck uh, in the coming months. Thanks very much for the, the conversation, Lucy. Oh, thanks so much. All right, so I think uh, for me, that's probably one of the most uh, interesting interviews that I've done in a while, and I think partly because it's it's a real inspiration. It's not just a factual episode. It's one that I think that, geez, I'd like to do this sort of trip, um, but you know, not likely to happen in any time in the near future. Uh, you know, to take five or six years to do a trip like this is pretty amazing, uh, and it really is, as I mentioned at the start of this episode. It's a real adventure, something that um, is is rare these days. Um, but yeah, it's just um, I, I think Lucy is just doing so well with his trip so far. Yeah, look, it's a bit of an overused word, but uh, awesome <laughs> comes to mind. Um, you know, she's very um, very self-effacing and probably wouldn't uh, want to see herself in that context. 
but just a, an absolute inspiration and some of the things that she's experiencing. And the thing that I enjoyed was that, you know, that there's a lot of um, effort that goes into doing some something like this. And, uh, you know, she's acknowledged that while she did a lot of planning, um, the plan doesn't always go to plan. And the way in which she's dealing with that and coping with that and just getting on with it and, you know, finding a way through, I think is just amazing. Um, I think um, one of the things that uh, she mentioned and one of the things I'd thought about before I interviewed her was security. And I think um, whether you're a man or a woman, yeah. Um, yeah, doing a trip like this, there's always risks. Uh, and I think, yeah, it's unfortunate, but I think there's probably more risks as a female than as, as a man. And I know she was talking about potentially picking up a, a male companion with a bit of, uh, uh, of military background, uh, to take her through some areas as she gets to the top of uh, South America. Because as she was saying that, you know, the concept of, oh, look, we, we couldn't, couldn't possibly let you do this. You're a woman. You, you, you need someone to look after you. And it's it's just a very different concept about what uh, we take for granted here in Australia, as far as uh, uh, what men, men and women are able to do, uh, pretty much by themselves. Whereas a lot of the more traditional, uh, uh, a lot of the more traditional uh, communities around the world still view uh, women as a bit of a a bit of a, a precious precious item, if you like, that has to be looked after. Yeah, look, I think, you know, the the thing that I liked about that was, you know, she's being very pragmatic about it. She's, um, you know, she's got her focus on her her goal uh, rather than the goal of changing the world. <laughs> so accepting that if she needs a male companion, she'll, you know, um, uh, she'll find a male companion um, so she can complete the trip uh, rather than uh, challenge the, the kind of local wisdom in those areas. So, you know, again, I think it's, you know, she's obviously very focused and um, I, I think, uh, yeah, safety was one of those things that, that came out for me um, as one of the challenges and she's just navigating her way and I think it's great. And I think having Wombat there as a as a partner, it's uh, um, Jill made the comment when she was listening to this uh, this interview before we did this this final section that um, Lucy obviously hadn't had a lot of uh, a lot of people. Lot <laughs> the of people. dog doesn't answer back very much, so yeah, yeah, she's she's definitely uh, keen for a conversation when she has an opportunity, which you know, I you obviously uh, can appreciate that. The other thing I did like was the you know she'd been. Um, learning uh, Spanish for two years and um, it wasn't helping her very much <laughs> at this minute. So we can empathise with that, um, perhaps not to the same the, the same extent. But, you, you know, I mean, what an amazing journey she's on. And I, and I think certainly having Wombat there as a companion, um, as I said, Blue Heel is very unique sort of Australian dog uh, and you tend to take for granted uh, that, that that you just see them around regularly. Uh, and I think for, for someone overseas, they're, they're a stocky, um, you know, they 
have a potential to to look mean and nasty if they need to, and, and you know, they're certainly not a dog I'd, I'd approach uh, without knowing what it is and, and and pat it without without getting approval of the owner first. So I think you know wombat, apart from being a companion on the trail, is also providing an, that 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 bit of security as well. Yeah, yeah. Look, it was interesting to hear also about the the physical aspects of this. Um, uh, not just the you know the strain um, on her body and so on, um, but you know the change in hair color and you know, <laughs> I'm not sure what color that'll be by by the time she finishes and um, after a couple of years of of not having done this, it probably never be the same again. But um, yeah, so you know that whole sort of emotional change she's going through as well as the physical change. So you know it's it's a really amazing thing and. Um, the hiking at night, walking at night and resting during the day in the heat. I mean, that just would be uh, un- unbelievably, uh, look, probably uh, weird, probably a little bit dangerous in, in terms of, you know, trips and falls. Um, um, I-, I guess you get your eye in and off you go. But, wow, you know, that is just a really different way. I was having a bit of a chat to Jill before we did this last final segment and one of the comments that Lucy made early on in her interview was she'd never had an extended holiday before and and this is probably This is not a holiday. <laughs> this, this is probably extreme as you go as far as an extended holiday and I, and I must admit I I tend to take a slightly different view than than Jill on this. Um, I would see it as a holiday and I wouldn't see it as an easy holiday. I think I agree with that. This is definitely hard work involving a lot of physical and mental uh, effort and preparation and fortitude to, ca- to carry this through. Um, but it's it's the sort of thing that, to set yourself a challenge of this magnitude. Uh, and even if you were to stop tomorrow, it's, it's still pretty amazing. Um, uh, and I think once she actually gets through South America, uh, the North American component of it, uh, at least culturally, will be a lot easier. Um, you'll be around um, an English-speaking uh, nation um, uh, uh, and carrying through with a lot of hikers uh, at the same time. So I think... Um, but even that's going to be a bit different because, you know, those hikers... Uh, the point of reference uh, for them is quite still quite a different one, even though you know they um, uh, they've been hiking for a long time. They'll be hiking through, as you say, uh, the US, um, not having done the the journey that that Lucy's done. So, you know, her perspective will be uh, an interesting one to uh, check in with, I guess. And you said that you were going to. Um, connect on a regular basis with her so that some of those would be interesting to to see how it changes over time yeah certainly uh, we have uh, having a, in having a chat to Lucy I'm going to catch up with her again uh, to do another to touch base with her around about October just as she is due to leave Peru before uh, her visa expires so I'll catch up with her then uh, and probably uh, a bit later on after that as she as she enters the the US and starts uh, starts the American component of the trip as well so uh, keep a, a, an eye out for the upcoming episodes over the next next couple of years really as we touch base with her from time to time now one thing she did mention um uh, uh, and this is where if you feel like you want to go through and help her out uh, certainly uh, if you're 
happy to be a, a bit of a, a pack mule if you're heading over in that direction and, and want to be able to take her over some stuff. Um, yeah, I'm sure she'd appreciate the contact and appreciate any help if you if you can bring things over for her. Um, in the show notes for this episode, so if you go to the Australian Hiker website and go to the show notes for episode 108, I've got a series of links through to her website, through to her social media. So if you want to follow along and follow her journey, you can find the links there. Um, as also, uh, if you want to sponsor her as well uh, and help out in that capacity, um, the um, you, I've got the link there for that. If you're a supplier, uh, again, I'm sure uh, Lucy would be uh, more than happy to hear she from you. She needs a SIM card. <laughs> we'll put the challenge out there to the uh, the telcos, <laughs> whoever's going to be in first, to provide her with a free SIM card for her journey. Um, well done for you, <laughs> whoever that might be. Um, but you know, Lucy mentioned companies like uh, Cedar Summit, which is a well-known Australian company. Uh, she talked about the pod food from, from EDAS. Uh, we've reviewed those previously. Uh, Mono Walker, um, have a look at the photos on the uh, the show notes. Um, the Mono Walker has been something I've been looking at for a couple of years, thinking, geez, I'd love to try one of these out. Um, uh, and also North Face uh, and um, Australian Geographic who have been helping out as well. So um, I'm sure she appreciates all those companies that have that have helped her out. But if you're willing to uh, to kick in and help with a bit of sponsorship, I'm sure she'd appreciate it. Okay, so that's all for this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, it's been a, certainly for me, it's been an inspiring listen and something that, that I'd really love to do, maybe not to that extreme. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> oh, no, um, seriously. But, yeah, it's uh, to do a trip like this, you know, it really is a once-in-a-lifetime and she'll have memories for the rest of the life to carry that through. Next week's episode, episode 109, we're going to be talking about uh, recycling and hiking. Uh, and you know, we're not just going to be about talking about collecting rubbish on the trail. We're going to be looking at equipment and ways to reduce your impact on the environment um, as, uh, as you hike. So we hope that'll be uh, of interest to you. As always, you can listen to this podcast through our website on www.australianhiker.com.au through SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and many other podcatchers. And also, if you have the opportunity, please go through and give us a five-star rating on iTunes to help get the message out there. Uh, we're finding the podcast is growing um, month by month, um, and we're getting more and more listeners from more and more countries around the world. So those five-star ratings help us to uh, make uh, the Australian Hiker podcast uh, much more accessible to, to people that are interested in hiking. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me.